So take your Bibles, if you uh, have closed them, and turn back to Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. And as you're turning there, I, I just want to say how indebted I am to, to Ray Ortland Jr. For, for many of the insights that I've gotten from this passage today. It's a, an amazing uh, passage of God's wonderful grace and, and patience to his people. Uh, before we look at his word, though, let's, uh, let's pray. Oh, Lord, I want to thank you, oh, God, that we could come this morning to just be quiet, just to, to sit and listen as you, as you speak to us this morning. Our lives are so full of, of things, so many things, God, that oftentimes distract our attention away from you. And things, God, that seek to indoctrinate us um, against your ways and who you are. But Lord, I thank you uh, not only that we can hear your word, but we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people. And I pray that you would use the words that are spoken this day to uh, rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. But Lord, also to encourage us and to uh, stir and strengthen the faith that you have given to us. Lord, to love you even more, we thank you and we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I wonder, do you, do you ever just desire to love God more? Do you ever have that, that sense about you that you just think, Lord, I just, I just want to love you more. I know that I sin every day of my life and I know that the sin that I do hurts other people. I know that I find myself doing those things which I do not want to do and I don't do those things that I know that I ought to do and that grieve your Holy Spirit. And so God, I, I just desire to love nothing more than I love you. Well, this week I, I came across a, a hymn that I actually had never seen before. It's written by John Newton and it's called Let Worldly Minds the World Pursue. And, uh, and as I read the words to that hymn, it was just incredible. But especially the second verse of that hymn, I, I just want to read for you this morning. He says, as by the light of opening day, the stars are all concealed. So earthly pleasures fade away when Jesus is revealed. In other words, what he's saying is, is in the same way that when the, the light of the day comes, the stars are concealed. So when Jesus is revealed to me, so my earthly pleasures fade away. And isn't that true? As we, as we focus upon Christ, as we spend time with him through his word and through prayer, and we see him for who he is, those worldly desires just sort of seem to take on a different hold on our lives and that we just sort of view them much differently. Well, then he goes on and he says, Creatures no more divide my choice. I bid them all depart. His name and love and gracious voice have fixed my roving heart. You know, in other words, he's saying that created things no longer compel me uh, so that my heart is divided between them and God. You know, all I want is God. And as I desire the Lord more than anything else, that's what fixes my, my roving heart, that heart that oftentimes wants to wander and, and I want us to see this morning as we look at God's word and maybe back up a little bit, just one chapter to Isaiah chapter six. Uh, that's what happened to Isaiah. In, in chapter six, Isaiah finds himself greatly affected 
by being in the presence of the Lord. But then we come to chapter seven and we encounter another man, a man by the name of Ahaz, king of Judah, who is a man of a divided heart. So we sort of see here a contrast between two men. We see uh, Isaiah and we see Ahaz. And what is the difference between the two? Well, it wasn't that Isaiah was more spiritual than Ahaz. I mean, I guess in some ways you could argue that he was, but it wasn't like he was a, a better person or anything like that, or he rejected temptation and the mastering of the flesh and he resisted the world uh, better, or he was an expert of that. As a matter of fact, if you look at Isaiah 6, when Isaiah finds himself in the presence of the Lord, he actually is overwhelmed by his sin. You know, so much so that he says, Woe am I, for I am a man of unclean lips. That's how much he was aware of his sin. So it wasn't that he was so much greater. And as a matter of fact, he felt his sin so much that an angel took a coal off the altar and placed it upon his lips. So you see, the difference between these two men was is that Isaiah was granted such an awareness of the glory of Jesus in his heart that he was free to say, Lord, here am I, send me. And, th and that is the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is, is just seeing, just having that awareness of the glory of God in, in who he is and just that sense of surrender to the Lord. But too often what passes is Christianity is more of a life that's legislated by the good example of Jesus on one side and sort of being frightened by the fear of God's punishment on the other side. And so oftentimes Christians will try to find that sweet spot in trying to be enough like Jesus that we look good while trying to avoid those things that might provoke God to punish us. And it's interesting to, to see Christians and, and people who struggle within that, almost seeking to perform before the Lord rather than understanding his wonderful grace and, and the, the awesome holiness of who our God is. And if we are a people who is afraid of sinning because we're afraid that, you know, God's going to send us to hell or something like that, and that's our whole motivation, then, you know, the reality is we are not a person who, is, who loves God's holiness we really have no motivation for action except for pride or fear. You know, pride in the sense of thinking that we're better than other people. We're more like Christ than what you are or you are or you are. That can sometimes be what motivates people. And that's what motivated people like the Pharisees. But then also it could be fear that God will somehow smoke us. I mean, Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. If not, maybe you know other people that it seems like they're motivated in everything in their life because they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're waiting for, you know, OK, well, things are going good, but, you know, God's just going to get me. I just know because I've 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 done these things wrong. But true faith is swallowed up uh, with such a sense of the glory of Jesus that our hearts look Pass that choice of whether to obey Christ or not, instead find pleasure in surrendering our lives to him. You know, when you and I sort of hover between competing choices, we are only proving how empty our hearts really are. True faith is not the capacity for victorious choices when faith, when uh, faced with two equally compelling alternatives. True faith is the capacity to live 
fully and joyfully because our hearts have been captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? There's a sense of just that freedom that we have in knowing our God. And that's what Isaiah experienced. And that's where God wants to bring us as his children to delight in him, to love in him, not to be acting out of pride or out of fear, but having hearts that are ravished by the love of God and seeing what he has done for us and rejoicing in him. And I think it's interesting that when God calls Isaiah to be his prophet and to to go to his people and to proclaim who he is, you know, uh, uh, Isaiah opens his opening chapters in verses two through five, sort of talking about the sins of Judah and and where they are. But, you know, rather than God just saying, "Okay, so this is the problem with my nation. Go and tell them to obey me. God gives uh, Isaiah this wonderful vision of of who he is, because when we are not responding to God's grace very well, what we need is not more law. What we need is more grace. We need to understand what Christ has done for us. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we come to Isaiah chapter 7. And as we come to uh, chapter 7, I don't know about you, but for me, I almost felt like I was coming in in the middle of a story. Like something had been happening here, but what exactly was that? Well, if you want the backstory to what's happening here in Isaiah 7, you have to go back to 2 Chronicles 28 or 2 Kings 16. So that's something you can do this afternoon. Go back and read 2 Chronicles 28 if you want, and it'll give you all the backstory. But I'll try to sort of briefly summarize this. Uh, you know, actually, um, before I get to that, I might just sort of mention that uh, what happens, you know, it, in Isaiah 6, that was written or that occurred in the year that King Uzziah died, which is about 740 B.C. And so by the time chapter 7 comes along, it's about five years later. But uh, let's go back, if we could, about 200 years before uh Ahaz and all that's happened in Isaiah 7. And uh, if you remember, um, especially you might remember this from Sunday school, how the kingdom of Israel divided into two parts. You know, you remember after the death of Solomon that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel broke away and they formed their own nation. And 10 of the tribes uh, that I'm talking about are the ones in the north. And they are called in Scripture Israel. They're referred to as Ephraim, uh, sometimes referred to as Jacob, just depending upon the context. And I know for a kid in Sunday school, that always confused me that you had the nation of Israel that divided into two parts. And then part of that nation was called Israel. You know, and I thought, OK, that, that was really confusing to me as a kid. But uh, but that was the case. And the capital city of that nation was Samaria, which is where we get the Samaritans from that we encounter in the New Testament. And then only two of the tribes in the south, that is Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to the dynasty of David, and they were called Judah. So you have the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south, and the capital of the city in the south was Jerusalem. So to say that there was like tension between these two nations was sort of an understatement. And and now that tension has been there for about 200 years. And, and that's sort of the, the context that we come to as we come to Isaiah 7. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 7. And in that day, 
in the day of Ahaz, in the day of Isaiah, there's sort of this new power uh, powerhouse that, uh, that's sort of rising. It's the Assyrian Empire, and it's rising to power, sort of imita- uh, intimidating all these smaller kingdoms and sort of consuming them and making the Assyrian Empire larger and larger and larger. So what happened was, is that Syria, which is Israel's northern neighbor, uh, comes to Israel and says, hey, let's form an alliance against Assyria. And so they did. But not only that, but then they said, let's go to Judah, the southern kingdom, and let's talk to Judah and let's make them a part of this alliance as well. Well, the problem with that is, is that Ahaz didn't want to join that alliance. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Syria and Ephraim or Israel didn't really care. They were going to make it part of their alliance anyway. So their strategy was to come down and to conquer Judah and defeat them and then take and put a king in the place of King Ahaz. And then they would all face Assyria together. Well, the problem is with that plan is it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work, as we see in Isaiah, is because God had made a covenant promise to David that his throne would stand forever and ever. And so that kingdom would not come and be taken over. And that's why in Isaiah uh, in chapter seven, verse one, that it says that these kingdoms can attack Judah, but they would not mount an attack against Jerusalem. In other words, they wouldn't take it over because there's no way that they could because the hand of the Lord was against it. So we see from the very beginning that while the threat is real, it would not come about because of God's covenant promises with his people. But as we as we are going to see, Ahaz doesn't believe that. He doesn't want to believe God's promises. Ahaz feels more uh, comfortable, more normal uh, with his own plans to deliver himself rather than he does to trust the Lord. And so Ahaz's heart becomes hardened more and more against the Lord. So the crisis exists because Ahaz is not caught up with the sense of the glory of God. Unlike Isaiah, who sees the Lord for who he is, Ahaz doesn't even take into account that God is even part of the formula. Well, brothers and sisters, I, I don't want to belabor this, but I think it's not doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics for us to understand that we oftentimes go through the same kind of things in our lives, that God oftentimes bring crisis into our, our lives to draw us ever closer to him. And he does that at various points in our lives. And, as, and at those times, we are sort of challenged with that question of, is God enough? Is God enough? Will God be true to his word when it really counts for me? And we're sometimes challenged by those things. And our answer to that question will be, we'll either struggle, you know, back and forth of, well, Lord, I, I think you are. I, I know you've given us your, your promises and I, I know that these things are true, but I, I don't know that I can trust you. Or it will be a de- decisive, yes, I can trust the Lord and we'll walk with him in faith. It all depends on whether we have a sense of the glory of Jesus Christ that has lifted our hearts above the uncertainty that we're facing to a place where we can rest in him. But I think what we what we need to see here in Isaiah 7 is that God is faithful, that God is faithful, that God is with his people. The Christian life 
begins with that idea that God is faithful, right? Because it's not us that chooses him, but he chooses us. But as we rest in that fact that he is faithful, it is only then that therefore we can uh, be faithful. And if we trust him, we will experience his saving presence. But if we do not trust the Lord like Ahaz did, we will experience his judging presence because God is always with his people. And so as we look at this, that's sort of all introduction. But as we get to this, I want us first and all to see the intimidation that happens in verses one and two. You know, we see that Ahaz is terrified at this alliance between Syria and Ephraim or the northern kingdom. And it's so much so that it has sort of this withering effect upon Ahaz. You know, look at verse two. It says, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There was a sense in which he is terrified. But we also need to understand, and we don't see it so much here, but if you look back at Second Chronicles and you read through that account, you'll see that God is the one who is orchestrating these events, that he is bringing these two nations against Ahaz so that Ahaz would uh, come to the Lord and he would, he would have an opportunity to repent of his sins and turn to the Lord. And so we see at verse three that God tells Isaiah to go and to meet Ahaz and, and to talk with him. And so look at verse three. He said, tells Isaiah, he says, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Joshua, uh, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. You see, what Ahaz was doing was doing what any good king would do. He was uh, sort of checking out the water supply because if a, enemy forces come against him, he has to know that he has a sufficient water supply to feed his or to water his troops and, and the people of his city, which makes sense. But the problem uh, is that Ahaz is not thinking in terms of who God is, but in terms of what he, Ahaz, can do to deliver his people. So God not only tells Isaiah to go and to speak to him, but also to take his son with him. Now, it's interesting, you know, in biblical days, uh, names had meanings and they were given for a very specific reason. And Isaiah's son's name meant a remnant will return. And so it wasn't just by accident or, you know, just like, hey, take your son along so you'll have somebody with you. He wanted to remind Ahaz that a remnant will return, that that uh, this is God's way of assuring Ahaz that even if the worst case scenario happens, a remnant of the people of God will return to Jerusalem because God continues to be with his people in spite of Ahaz's sinful ways. If you look back, like I said, again, at Second Chronicles 28, the first couple of verses, it describes uh, Ahaz as a wicked king, as a king who did uh, things in the sort of the same venue as the kings of Israel. So we read in verse four that God tells Ahaz, he says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, that's an interesting description for these two powerful nations. You know, you'd think he'd say, as you stand before these two mighty cedars that are before you, that are overtaking you. But that's not how God 
saw these two nations. He saw them as nothing but smoldering stumps of firebrands. Now, I think what we need to understand is, is that God is redefining the intimidation that Ahaz is experiencing. Okay, that that's oftentimes what happens as we go to God's word in the midst of those intimidating circumstances. That as we begin to see those things in our lives that cause us fear and those things that cause us worry, that as we look at God's word and we get an eternal perspective of those things that are before us, we understand that they are not as big and as great as what we think. That actually God's promises are such that they bring us great comfort. And so uh, God calls the enemies of Judah two smoldering stumps, or maybe another way to say it is two spent forces. You know, they're just sort of used up. Then he says in verses 7 through 9 that we see that God points out that these two nations are only led by men. They're men, Ahaz, like you and me. Yes, they may be powerful nations, but they are men. So what are they compared to who God is? And so God says that he will not allow these two men to succeed. As a matter of fact, God shares with Ahaz his plans for these two nations when they will become no more. And it's, it's really ironic. I mean, Ahaz didn't know this at the time, but just three years later, Syria would be crushed and in another 10 years, the northern kingdom would be swept away by Assyria. And then around 670 B.C., Israel's remaining population would be totally done away with. And so God is with his people. And, and this is Ahaz's opportunity to trust in God for deliverance. As a matter of fact, we read in verse 9, if you look at the second half of verse 9, Isaiah says to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you will not be firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, there's a play in words here in the Hebrew, which I don't know that I could really convey its meaning. But he's basically saying if you if you do not firm up, you will not be confirmed. You know, if you will live by faith or you won't live at all. I mean, that's just the bottom line. But if you want to experience uh, my support, the Lord says, that all you have to do is to lean on me. God is a God who is there in our weakness, in our need, and, and, and uh, as we are honest with him in those needs. And, and honestly, not, not to, uh, to press this point, but are we not in need all the time? You know, we may not feel our need at all time, but we are always weak. And it is in those times that the Lord is with us. And he tells us to have faith in him. Now, kids, what is faith? Do you remember from the time that we talked about the five solas and we talked about faith? And we said that there's three parts to faith. And we said that it, it's, it could be expressed with the word cat, only cat with a K, not with a C. Right. That in faith, there is knowledge. There is a, a scent. And there is trust. In other words, we have to have knowledge of who God is and what he promises. We have to have trust or we need or, or excuse me, assent, or we have to agree with that. What God reveals about himself. And then third, we have to trust. We have to embrace him. Remember the chair illustration I used where I said I can say that I believe the knowledge of God and that uh, I agree with it. But until I sit down in that chair and 
and show that I truly am putting my weight on that, it is only then that that is true faith. And that's what God was calling Ahaz, and that's what God calls us to in those midst of our great difficulties and turmoils to trust in him. But in our sin, we do not see God as the key to everything. We oftentimes either see him as irrelevant to our lives or sort of as a warm fuzzy that makes us feel good. But the truth is, is that God offers himself to us. If you might use the, the military language of, of Isaiah 7 as our fiercest ally in the crisis of our lives and that we are called to trust him and to trust his tactics and his resources more than we trust our own as we're going through those difficulties. So God is saying to Ahaz and to us that his presence makes all the difference in our crisis. That God calls us in the midst of those crises to lean on him and to trust in him. And only as we do that, that we will stand. So how is God calling us to trust him today? What are things that we are encountering that maybe feel like that intimidation that Ahaz was feeling? So I think we have to ask ourselves, how is God calling us to trust him? But I think on the, the other side of that coin, the other question is then, how is God calling me to not trust in myself? Because sometimes we become so comfortable in trusting ourselves that we don't even think to trust the Lord. But God calls us to not lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him and he will make our paths straight. So that's that intimidation. And then the rest of the chapter, we see the point of unbelief of Ahaz. Ahaz decides not to trust the Lord. He decides to insist on his own way. But it's interesting that God doesn't give up. God doesn't just give Ahaz an ultimatum and say, trust me or that's it. God says to him, you know what? I will give you a sign. He said, I will give you a confirmation. I'll give you a token, if you would, of my presence with you and that you could trust me. And so God gives Ahaz sort of a blank check. He says, ask anything you want and I will do that to show you that I am present with you. Ask for a sign and I will give it to you, says the Lord. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz refuses to, um, to do that. He refuses that sign. Uh, Ahaz knows, uh, I think in one sense, Ahaz didn't want to ask for a sign because if God were to show him that, then Ahaz knows that when he trusts the Lord, there's always strings attached. When we trust God, he takes control of our lives. And we sometimes do not want to give up that control. And if God calls us to trust in him, then we must do God's things, God's way, and God's timing. And we must do so in a way that will give glory to him for the outcome. And Ahaz, knowing that, says in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds so religious and it sounds so pious, doesn't it? You know, well, I'm not gonna trust the Lord, so I'm not gonna ask for a sign. But what Ahaz was doing was he was shrouding his unbelief in a veil of piety. It's sort of like the woman at the well in John chapter four. You know, Jesus goes to the woman and he says, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered. She goes, I have no husband. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. Uh, you have no husband. You have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. So in other words, woman, You've been divorced five times 
And now the man that you're with, you're not even married to. You're just living with him. And, you know, and so you're right to say that you have no husband. And so what does she do? Does she say, oh, Lord, you're right. I have sinned against you. No. She says, wow, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, Jesus confronts her with her sin. And rather than confessing her sin, she acts all pious and righteous. And she says, hey, let's talk about theology. Let's let's talk about theology. Let's talk about something really important. Doesn't that sound super spiritual? Well, we know from the, the account, Jesus doesn't leave her there. But that's what Ahaz is doing here as well. He's sounding very pious and righteous. But what he's really doing is he is resisting God's claim upon his life. And if we resist the claims of God's control on our lives, we will find a way oftentimes like Ahaz to try to justify that unbelief and that sin. And since Ahaz would not act by faith by asking for a sign, the Lord sent a sign anyway. We read in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God sends a sign of something that probably for Ahaz seemed very uh, improbable. Uh, but we know from Matthew chapter 1 that ultimately that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But notice that in verse 16, that the sign will also be partially fulfilled in Isaiah's day. For he says, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. In other words, before, you know, while this kid is still a little, little, little child, your enemies will go away. The kings that you're so afraid of, their lands will be deserted. So this prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's time with the birth even of his own son. And the birth of this boy was assigned to Ahaz and to his generation that God is present with his people. But unfortunately for Ahaz, this sign was a sign of judgment for his unbelief rather than for the deliverance that God had promised if he would just trust him. And unfortunately, Ahaz decided that it was smarter to trust the Assyrians than it was to trust the Lord. And so Ahaz ended up going to Assyria and trying to make a deal with them. One person described it this way. They said, if you think about these two northern kingdoms, Syria and Ephraim, coming against uh, Judah, it was almost like two rats attacking a mouse. And so what does the mouse do? He runs to the cat to Assyria and says, help me. But instead of the cat saving the mouse, he eats the mouse. And that's basically what happened to Ahaz. You know, that it ended up being that Assyria betrayed him. And so as we, we look at this, it's just a devastating example of what we see in verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And that's exactly what happened to Ahaz. He fell. So what about us? You know, how are we so different from Ahaz? You know, we, I, you know, I, I could read this story and I can see the unfaithfulness in my own heart. And I think, oh God, what hope do I have? I'm not an Isaiah. Oftentimes, I unfortunately can oftentimes relate more with Ahaz. Well, I think what's interesting is, is that while Ahaz's story is heartbreaking, it's not the end of the story. Because like I said earlier, 
we read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, that the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is in Jesus Christ. You know, that Jesus Christ is the sign that God sends that he is with us. And, and we see that in, in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, as the angel is talking to the shepherds, what does he say? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we also read that in John chapter 1. Look at John 1, if you would. I want to refer to a couple of verses there. So if you have your Bibles open to John 1, we read in the opening verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. So we see that this word was God, but he was also separate from God. And that is because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. It said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, it is in Christ that we, like Isaiah, have seen such an awareness of the glory of God in our hearts that we are freed to say, here am I, send me. We just need to have faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust God, he takes control. And that means that you will have to do God's things, God's way and his timing, giving glory to God for the outcome. And God offers himself to us as our fiercest ally in the crisis of life. But we must trust him and we must trust his tactics and his resources and not trust our own things. God is saying to you and to me that my presence makes a difference in your crisis. Lean on me and I will stand. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ doesn't just deal with the difficulties of our lives, that he has taken on our greatest enemies, sin and death, and he has conquered those enemies. And he has, and he has said, like in Isaiah, if you, will not firm, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. But as we trust the Lord, as we come to him and we rest in him, because he is the one who gives us faith to trust in him, that as we do, we will stand firm. Not only uh, as we come to faith in Christ, and understand that he is our savior, but as he continues to be our Lord throughout our lives, that we can come to him and we can rest in him. God is faithful, and if we trust in him, we will experience his saving presence, but yet if we refuse him, as Ahaz did, we will experience his judging presence. But God is with his people, and God comes to us and confronts us as Ahaz. Do you trust me? That's what he's saying to us today. Do you trust me? Do you know that God is present with you? Will you have faith in him? If you are not overwhelmed with your sin, what Christ can do is give you a sense of the glory of God, an ever-increasing awareness of his grace for those who he calls his children. Look, if you would, at John chapter 12, or excuse me, John chapter 1. Uh, verse 11. He's talking to people that he came to. Uh, he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So he's talking to people whom he came to 
but did not receive him. That is our natural inclination is not to trust in the Lord. But we read in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so what hope do we have that we would not be like Ahaz, but that we would trust the Lord? It is because God's spirit works in our hearts to make us his children, that we have that spirit of adoption in us, that we can trust our heavenly father and know that he will lead us no matter where we are. Amen. So no matter what we faith, face, our God is faithful. Let's bow for a time of silence and meditation. Lord, we thank you that you call us to trust you, to know you, to rejoice in you, O Lord. We pray, God, that we would be a people who live in your presence. God, that we would be a people that would not neglect the means of grace that you have given to us. And we just pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to so uh, desire to know you that we would take every avenue, Lord, to fellowship with you, to delight and to rejoice in you. Oh God, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts that in those times where we are intimidated, in those times, God, where it seems like the world is overwhelming, God, where there is no hope, where things seem so dark, and Father, that it's not only that we would make, that we would uh, think of you in terms of being a part of the equation, but that we would understand that you are the solution. God, that we could trust in you, that that is the foundation of who we are in Christ is the faith that you have given to us. And Lord, I pray that we would stand firm and that in those times that uh, the world would see around us your mighty works in a weak and a needy people. And that God, that they would uh, come to faith in you as they see your mighty work through your church. God, we're small, maybe even appear insignificant as a new church plant. But Lord, we are encouraged and so thankful that you are our God. And we would just pray that your glory would be known in our midst and that God, you would do mighty and great things here in Andover and in the surrounding communities. The Lord, that those who like this man at Manhattan, uh, who is a professing unbeliever, would sit under the preaching of your word for years, would eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that that scenario would be played out over again and again and again and again. And we pray that, oh God, for your, the sake of your glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.